0: Job chapter 31 is Job's explanation of his righteous life. Job was a man whose world fell apart on him. And when his world fell apart, he had three good friends who came. And those good friends did the right thing for the first week. They just sat with him. They mourned with him. But then after that first week, his friends tried to start explaining what happened to Job. And sometimes when we're trying to explain what's going on in the life of somebody else, sometimes we don't have it right. These men didn't have it right when it came to Job's life. Because their explanation went something like this. Job, we can tell you why these problems have come upon you. It's because of sin in your life. But we, the readers of the book of Job, we know from the very first chapter that Job was a blameless man. that, That he wasn't sinlessly perfect, but on a human scale as a man among men not a man compared to god but as a man among men he was a righteous man and we know that the calamity that came upon job's life did not come because he was a sinful man or a particularly sinful man it was not god's correction well job's friends wouldn't let the point go they kept hammering him again and again job you got to repent you got to repent this is why it's come upon your life you got to repent and and throughout it job gets sick and sicker and sickest of it, where finally, in Job chapter 31, he gives a defense of his righteous life. Now before we start taking a look at this text, there's three things that I need to explain to you, and I hope to do this quickly so we can spend as much time. Number one, and men, please listen to me on this point. The core of the Christian life is what Jesus Christ has done for you. It is not what you do for Jesus Christ. Do we understand that? The core of the Christian life is Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. It's not you and what you can do for God. However, after we understand Jesus is in, we're supposed to go out and live a life. And it's helpful for us to know from the scriptures what kind of life to live. So I want to speak this to men who understand that they're not trying to earn their way before God, but by a righteous life, but that they've been made righteous by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And now to his glory, to his honor, they want to go out and live the way that they should. That's the first thing. The second thing I really want to impress upon us is that these kind of lists First Timothy gives us a list of the qualifications for an elders. That's a helpful list, isn't it? Titus gives us a list of the qualifications of a man of God. We need things like this. It's not telling us how to earn our righteousness, but it's giving us a vision, a map, a guide. Job chapter 31 is like that. And men, we need it. You're never going to get it from the world. What, are you going to look to the world around you to tell you how to live a righteous life? The world around you tell you how to be a great big pervert. That's what the world around will tell you. We're not going to get it from the world. We need the word of God to tell us. You see, it's part of our transformation. Just like Pastor Bobby spoke in our first session, that that being transformed by the renewing of our mind, not letting the world push us into its mold. Well, what we're going to hear about is some of the mold that God wants to push you into. We're not trying to earn our righteousness, but we just want to walk rightly before the Lord. Chapters like this are helpful in our own self-examination of our life. And we don't want to, as Christian men, we don't want to obsess on self-examination. Because again, the center of our Christian life is not us, it's Jesus. But, from time to time, we need to take a look. Look, if you see a guy who's looking in the mirror all the time, something wrong with that man. But if there's a guy who never looks in the mirror well he'd look like some of you guys do here today (laughs) so again from time to time we need to do some self-examination and this is also a list that's helpful for our prayer life it tells us how to pray lord i see this is weak in my life would you please would you please give me the grace by the power of the holy spirit to develop in this area but then the third thing is simply this This chapter came from Job's self-defense before his friends. Men, when our character is attacked, normally we stay away from self-defense. Normally, we want to be like Jesus who opened not his mouth when he was maligned. Normally, we, we just say, listen, God will be my defense I'm not going to try to defend my character. I'll just live my character before God and man. Normally, that's what we do. But there are exceptions. There are times, maybe they're rare, when God would have us just say, no, let me tell you about the kind of man I am or at least hope to be before God. I'll tell you this, we're happy that Job made this defense because it gives us a wonderful road map on how to be a man of God. So, Job chapter 31 beginning at verse 1. He says this. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? When Job begins to describe his righteous life he begins with this simple phrase, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Brothers, Job wrote this more than 4,000 years ago. <laughs> and where does he talk about first when it comes to righteousness? Lustful images that he would allow his mind and his heart to be entertained by. Isn't this funny? This this is how ever since the fall we have this corruption in our human nature that we need to just be men about not dogs about we need to be men about this and say no god helping me i'm going to take every thought captive to jesus christ you see he's saying i'm a blameless i'm a godly man at least on a human scale And I can tell you why I know I am that. Because I've made this covenant with my eyes. I'm not going to look upon a young woman in that lustful, impure way. It's very interesting to my mind. Job begins here. That's a marker for the life of man. And we're not trying to say that if you have this area in your life, well, then you're totally righteous. As Christians, we're not like weirdly sex obsessed. And we want to ask if that's all there is in a righteous walk. But neither are we fools. We know that's a big part of being a man in an unrighteous generation. We know this too, that when Job mentions that he's made a covenant with his eyes, we understand that eyes are the gateway for lust, especially for us as men. It's been demonstrated again, over and over again, by our personal experience, by empirical study. When a man places enticing, sensual, lust-inducing images before his eyes... You know what it is? It's foreplay. You're allowing yourself to be aroused. It's sexual foreplay with someone who you shouldn't be entering into such things with. It's not your wife. Friends, this is something we just got to seriously consider and do as Job did, make a covenant with our eyes. He made a vow, a promise, a commitment with his own eyes that he's not going to look upon a young woman this way. Now, this shows us, first of all, that such a covenant is possible, but it also shows us that such a covenant is necessary. We just need to be serious about this in our life. And by the way, Job took it in reference to look upon a young woman, a maiden in this way. And this is especially meaningful because in Job's culture, he's an older man. He's a wealthy man. He's an influential man. Job's culture all around him said, Job, that's absolutely fine for you to do. A man of your standing. A man of your status. A man of your wealth in the community. You look upon any maiden you want. You take any young maiden you want. You bring her into your harem as a concubine. Go right ahead. Job says, no. Even if the culture says it's okay, I want nothing to do with that. I'm going to make a covenant with my eyes. But brothers, look at what he says in verse 2. This is so piercing. He says, for what is the allotment of God from above? You know what Job could say? He could say, there's that young woman. She's attractive. It's possible for me to set my eyes upon her and to let her beauty or whatever allure me. But he says, you know what? She's not allotted to me. God has allotted somebody to me. And I won't do it. I'm only going to receive what God has allotted to me. What a thing it is in our culture right here, right now, in November of 2017 when there's sort of a mania sweeping the culture at large over sexual harassment and all the rest of it. And you know what this is? Th- these are men basically thinking, I-, I have a claim on any woman I want. Any woman I want, I'll lay a claim to. They have no sense that there's one woman, their wife, given to them in the covenant marriage, that woman is allotted to me by God. Every other woman? No. And if we can keep this in our heart and our mind, what a powerful thing this is. Now, of course, and I don't need to go in depth, you guys get the point that that this also extends to pornography. You know, there certainly existed some kind of pornography in Job's day. Archaeologists have discovered some of the earliest clay figures that ancient man made, and they were somewhat obscene. It's like as soon as man developed the ability to shape clay and make a figure, he said, I'm going to make one of big boobs. It's like, that's what—that's that's it, that's human nature. Uh, certainly there existed some kind of pornography in Job. Say he goes, no, that's not for me. That's not the woman depicted in that picture or image or whatever it is. She is not the allotment of God for me. And really, just ask yourself the question, am I going to be so... Proud? Am I going to be so foolish to walk around and think every woman is God's allotment for me? No, it's the woman I'm in a covenant of marriage with now or the woman that one day God may have for me in a covenant of marriage. But I'm going to be pleased with the allotment of God for me. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, yeah, but David, you're, you're married to a beautiful Swedish woman, which I am. <laughs> That's easy for you. If you knew my wife, you you might be singing a different tune. (laughs) Well, let me just say this to you, brother. Number one, uh, Job's wife wasn't exactly a fount of blessing and encouragement to him. (laughs) Yet he said this. But secondly, I want to draw your attention to the principle of Solomon. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. None of it was blessed by God. Do, do you know how many sons the Scripture records of us from Solomon? One. Now, I'm not saying that's all he had, but if he had others, the Scriptures are silent on It's like the Scriptures didn't want us to know if he had more than that. It was God's way of saying, my blessing is not on these thousand partners. But here's the principle from Solomon. You ready for this? If you like to take notes, take notes on this. Solomon teaches us that if one woman isn't enough for you, a thousand won't be enough for you. You think, well, if I just had another woman, a different woman, then I'd be enough. No, brothers. If the one woman God has appointed, if she's not enough for you, then a thousand won't be enough. You don't deceive yourself. The problem's not with her. It's with you. So it's helpful for us to realize that this begins there. But, but it's not all about that. By the way, let me just take one more look at this, verse 3. He says, Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? You, you know, when, when it came to lust, Job said, I want to control myself because I want to consider the destructive nature of allowing my lust to be excited and focused upon anyone I please. And brothers, do I need to preach this or is it self-evident? There's destructive destruction everywhere from men who said, I'm not going to control this. I'm not going to get down before the Lord and on my knees before Him, beg Him for a filling of the Holy Spirit and a spirit of self-control. But men, you know it. I don't have to teach this from the Bible. I could teach it from our human experience and human observation. When we give full um, a room to whatever lust we have, destruction follows. And Job saw that. And the last thing he says here is in verse 4. I could spend all our time just on these first four verses. i got to control myself here. (laughs) He says this. Does he not see all my ways and count all my steps? You know the other thing that kept Job from lust? God sees me all the time. (laughs) Does he not? I think I'm doing this in secret. Nobody sees. God sees. He sees all my ways. He counts all my steps and living with that vital awareness of the presence of God in every moment of our day. Well, that's another thing that will help us say I've made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look upon a young woman. Now, Job's righteousness was not only in this area of sexuality and and restraining himself from unbridled lust. And we as Christians, we get it wrong if we think, well, if that area of your life's okay, then everything's good. Not necessarily. Job goes on and he says, here's another area. Look at verses 5 through 8. Now he's going to say how he was not guilty of falsehood. Here we go. Verse 5. If I've walked with falsehood or if my foot has hastened to deceit. Let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. If my step is turned from the way or my heart walked after my eyes or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yet let my harvest be rooted out. Job also proclaimed his blameless life because he lived an essentially truthful life. He was not afraid, look at verse 6, to be weighed on honest scales. He says, Lord, to the best of my ability, I know I'm not a perfect man, but to the best of my ability, I've tried to walk as an honest man, as a man full of integrity. And therefore, if he says, verse 7, if my step has turned from the way, if I have been dishonest, then he brings almost down a curse upon himself. Look at he says in verse 8, then let me sow and another eat. Job was not afraid to call a curse down upon himself if indeed he was not an honest man he was willing to be deprived of the fruit of his own labor if it was true that he was found lacking on the honest scales of God's judgment. Men, be men of truth. Be men of integrity. Every day, in a dozen small ways, you and I are challenged to this very point, are we not? Are we going to be steadfast men of integrity? Or are we going to fudge? Are we going to slip? Are we going to dissemble in some way? And God helping us, we need to realize that God is going to weigh us on honest scales. And we need to be men of the truth. We need to be men of the truth with our wives. What are you doing trying to deceive your wife? We need to be men of truth with our financial dealings. If you're cheating the government of taxes, God tells you not to do that. We need to be men of truth in our business practices. We need to be men of truth just in the integrity of our daily life, our social life with other men. Joel says, I- I'm going to be a man who's not marked by falsehood. It's very impressive that Job said, I'm so confident of this that let me be cursed if it's not true. Now starting at verse 9, Job's going to proclaim that he was not an adulterer. We might think this is related. Of course, it is related to what he said in the first four verses. But it's not exactly the same. He says now, verse 9. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I've lurked by my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down over her. For that would be wickedness, yet it would be iniquity deserving of judgment. For that would be a fire that consumes to destruction, and would root out all my increase. Job says, look, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, if I've gone after in my heart or in my sexual life, if I've gone after another woman, a woman that's not my wife, if I've committed adultery, then he says, that would be wickedness. First of all, bless you, Job, for recognizing what it would be. We we sometimes it's it was an affair. Brother, it was adultery. It, it was a romance. It was an indiscretion. It was a mistake. Brother, it was adultery. It was wickedness. You're not going to find condemnation from us. Every one of us would say, We understand, we sympathize, we know our own natures, men. But let's be honest about this. Let's call it for what it is. Men, take great care that your heart is not enticed by another woman. And it may very well begin simply with the heart. You're you're confiding in a woman the way that you should only confide in your wife. You're spending time with another. And it's just starting out, just social or just business. Brother, would you be wise enough to see where that's leading? I stand in front of a group of this many men and I don't have any word of supernatural wisdom from the Holy Spirit to call out on this side of the room or this side, and there's a man here. But I'll just tell you, statistically speaking, with this many men in the room, wouldn't there be one or several men right now you are committing adultery? Wouldn't there be one or several men in this room you are on the path to it? It's there in your heart right now. Even right now as I'm speaking, the, 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 the face of the woman that, that you're uh, beginning to be drawn to, it's right now so strong in front of your face. Brother, do you see why you're here this morning? God's called you in his mercy and his grace. He's sounding the alarm bell. Forsake it. Get rid of it. Turn. You're on the path to destruction. Destruction. I'll tell you the path to destruction. Look at what he says in the last few verses there. He says in verse 12, for that would be a fire that consumes the destruction and would root out all my increase. It's going to take away my financial holdings. You talk to the man who's divorced and is paying out one or two um, uh, alimony payments and does that root out all your increase or what? Job says, no, I don't want it to be that way. I'm going to say one more thing here about verse 10 that I think is very telling. In verse 10 he says, If I was guilty of such thing, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down over her. Now, there's debate among scholars as to whether or not Job in his curse is saying, Let my wife be a servant for other men or let other men have sexual domination over my wife. You, you just kind of get that from the wording there, right? You know what I think is interesting about that is, if it is the second case, which by the way, the Hebrew scholars aren't sure of this, but if it is, isn't it fascinating how tactfully Job speaks of such a thing? And it shows us how in God's word, very frank, And sometimes shocking things, even in the sexual area, can be spoken of, but it's always spoken of in a tactful, tasteful way. Never crude, never dirty. This is the furthest thing from profanity in the pulpit. And we're just impressed by that in the nature of God's word. All right, well, here's another aspect to Job's godliness look at verse 13. He's going to talk about the fact that he didn't treat his servants cruelly. He says this, If I've despised the cause of my male or female servant when they complained against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he punishes, how shall I answer them? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? Here Job says, You know I'm a righteous man, Because I had a good and compassionate treatment of my servants. Brothers, the goodness of a man is often indicated by how they treat others who are thought to be lower than them. I'm saying thought to be because, look, we all know the ground's level at the cross. Every one of us, we're just all brothers before the Lord. We get that. But look, let's be real about how it is in our society, in our culture. There are some people who are thought to be on a higher level than other people. And you can tell something about your godliness by how you treat people who are thought to be lower than you on the social scale. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I were having dinner with a... uh, A guy goes to our church in Santa Barbara, and this guy's been very successful in the business world. He's a tremendous marketer, and, and, you know, he's doing deals and putting things together. And it's always kind of fun to talk to him about, talk about his latest deal. And he's a guy who's always looking to hire high-powered people to get his business done for him. And he said, David, I'll tell you what I look for in a person that I hire. He said, when I have a kind of meeting with them, he said, I don't look for how they treat me. Who cares how they treat me? They're trying to get a job. They'll suck up to me. He says, I look to see how they treat the waiter or the waitress, the the, the person who cleans the room, the person just doing regular menial work around them. That's what I get a kind of clue from, from their character. And it's true, isn't it? Man, if you've got a haughty spirit, you go around thinking yourself better than some other people. Tell you what, that's not from God. Job says, No, listen, I don't despise other people. He goes, If I was like that, what would I do when God rises up? <laughs> when God rises up, we're all equal before Him. And then he understands this. He says, Did not He who made me in the womb make them? That person. For whatever reason, you find it easy to look your no, down your nose towards them. Brother, the same God made them who made you. You know, and I don't doubt there's many ways that God made them better than he made you. So just understand it. How we treat others, especially those thought to be lower than us, it's a big indicator of our godliness. This is related to what he talks about starting at verse 16. How he didn't victimize the poor or the weak. Verse 16. If I have kept the poor from their desire... Or caused the eyes of the widows to fall, or eaten my morsel by myself, so that the fatherless could not eat of it. But from my youth I reared him as a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I've raised my hand against the fatherless when I saw that I had help in the gate, then let my arm fall. From its shoulder, let my arm be torn from the socket. For destruction from God is a terror to me, and because of His magnificence, I cannot endure. You see what Job's saying here? A further mark of a righteous man—this is number five on our list—is that he had not kept the poor from their desire or caused the eyes of the widow to fail. That's in verse 16. Job had a heart for the poor and the needy. Brothers, if we go around despising the poor and the needy, I don't think that's the heart of God. You say, but but wait a minute, but wait a minute. They, They brought their poverty upon themselves. Maybe they did. They still deserve a compassionate heart from you. And look, let's understand this. Our heart to help the poor should be to genuinely help them. And you and I know, many of us have experienced this in our personal life, I certainly have, that sometimes giving a person everything they ask for isn't helping them. But what the measure is, is not my own level of comfort or discomfort. My measure is what's actually going to help that person. But Job, Job said, I have a heart to help the poor and needy and I have enacted it. Verse 19, if I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, then rip off my arm. Verse 22, let my arm fall from its shoulder is what he says. Again, he calls a curse down on himself. If it was true that he had not cared about the poor and helpless as he claimed he had. Now, man, I know, I know this church I know this church and its heart for the poor and needy. I don't think I have to tell you to start doing this, but I do need to bless you in the name of the Lord and say, continue it. And have it in your heart. Sometimes it's easy for us as men, especially if we come from a particular kind of political standpoint, where we're just going, well, that's something that the liberals care about. Listen, for a moment, why don't you just forget about conservative or liberal... And just look to God's word. God wants you to have a heart for the poor and the needy. So you figure out before God what that means for you and your church to do. And again, from what I know, the work you do in this congregation, it's glorious. Keep it going and let God show you how to continue it on. Verse 24.6 He wasn't a greedy man or a seeker of false gods. We read here, if I've made gold my hope, Or said to find gold. You're my confidence. If I've rejoiced because my wealth was great. And because my hand had gained much. If I've observed the sun when it shines. Or the moon in its brightness. Moving in its brightness. So that my heart has been secretly enticed. And my mouth has kissed my hand. This also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment. For I would have denied God who is above. See what he's saying here? First of all. If I've made gold my hope, then let God strike me. Now, Job was an incredibly wealthy man. And this shows us something. It is possible to be very wealthy in the things of this world and not make it your hope. I've got no word of condemnation for any man here who's come to his wealth in an honest way. God bless you. Just use it in a righteous way. Don't make gold your hope. It's a lousy hope. It can all vanish tomorrow. Don't put your trust in riches. Put your trust in the Lord. But then he also says, I haven't bowed down to other gods. Look at verse 26. If I've observed the sun when it shines. Job meant that he didn't engage in the common practices of sun worship or moon worship. No, his heart was sold out not to the riches of this world, not to the gods that everybody else worships, but unto the Lord God himself. And now, starting at verse 29, our seventh point, just that he was generally without blame. Ready? If I have rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me or lifted myself up when evil found him, Indeed, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been satisfied with his meat? But no sojourner had to lodge in the street for I've opened my doors to the traveler if I've covered my transgression as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families so that I kept silence and did not go out the door and again the implication there then let God deal with me severely. Do you see his point here? It's very powerful. It's very eloquent. Job says verse 29 if I have rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me. Men, in this life, we occasionally will have enemies and adversaries. Some of them are true enemies. Some of them are temporary enemies. Whatever they are, true or temporary, God forbid that we should rejoice in their destruction god forbid that we should have that kind of vindictive spirit that would ask for a curse on their soul may god give us the grace to do what job indicates here but jesus explains so much more clearly in the sermon on the mount to bless those who curse you to pray for those who persecute you and spitefully use you it's our business as believers Not to return evil for evil, but to return good for evil that's done unto us. I know it's a high calling, but the Jesus who commanded this lives within us. And God helping us, we can rise up to a higher standard. This is our place. Listen, hating the people who hate you, anybody can do that. That's standard operating procedure in this world. But God asks us, to rise a little higher. And I think it's a special word to bring to a Philadelphia audience. You know, you guys who cheer when a player's injured on the field? You know, (laughs) that kind of stuff? Oh yeah, we've seen the video, folks. Lord, just give us a heart to rise above. And then he talks about his compassion to the sojourner. Verse 33, this is especially relevant. If I've covered my transgression as Adam by hiding iniquity in my bosom. As he concludes this section, because really verse 34 uh, ends the section where he's describing his own righteousness. Verse 34, he says, listen, if I've tried to cover my own transgressions just like Adam, what did Adam do to try to cover his sin? He made aprons of fig leaves. They were itchy, lame, incomplete coverings. It was just a vain attempt to cover over his own sin. But what did God do when He wanted to make it right with Adam? God sacrificed an animal, made a covering of skin, blood was shed for the cause of atonement, and He covered Adam and Eve in the skins of animals. Men, the whole history of God's work ever since the Garden of Eden to now can be described in two ways. Either, either, you're trying to cover your own sin like Adam did, or you're going to let God provide a covering. The perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. Which brings us back to our first and original point. Men, I want you to live godly lives. I want you to live lives that, that uh, are, are, are not... Uh, consumed with lust. You make a covenant with your eyes. I want you to live lives that, that are not given over to falsehood. I want you to live lives that, that aren't marked by adultery and going after other women. I, I want you to mark lives, live lives that are marked by, by treating others well. Even those who are thought to be lower than you. I want you to live lives that do not victimize the poor and the weak. That, that are not greedy or going after false gods. I want you to live lives that are generally blameless in the way that you live. But again, the center of our Christian life is not our performance, but what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. You see, when I read this description, every one of us falls short of it in some way or another. If I read through this whole description, and on every point here, you said, 100%, 100%, 100%. Then I've got one plea for you. Would you please come up and lay your hands on me and pray for me? I, I would love to have the prayers of such a righteous man. And then I'll probably pray for you that the veil of deception that covers your eyes will be taken away. So at the end of it all, even even while we trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to live the righteous life that's described for us here in Job chapter 31, we realize that when and as we fail, we don't have to cover it ourselves. Jesus Christ has provided a covering for us. And we run to Jesus and receive the forgiveness of sins purchased by his own work on the cross for us. Father in heaven, this is our prayer. We thank you, Lord. The the world is not going to tell us how to live godly lives. No way. So we're thankful for these passages of Scripture that show us what the profile of a godly man is like. And Lord, we pray, just just without any hesitation, we pray, help us to live more godly lives. Help us to live lives that give more glory and honor to you, that, that are more of a credit to our family and to our wives that represent you in a lost and dying world. But Father, we we know that even as we fall short of that high and wonderful goal, we have a refuge in you. Thank you, Jesus, for being the righteous man, more righteous than Job himself, for covering our sin by your work on the cross. We receive it together, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor David Guzik. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor David's teaching ministry by visiting EnduringWord.com.